Welcome to the 30th episode of Dialika. I'm Stephanie Tankilisan. And I'm Swedian Lee. And this week we have a very special guest, Professor Gemma Purdy from Manash University, who wrote the book Anti-Chinese Violence 1996-1999. to We're taking this time to unpack the riots of May 1998, as well as its lasting impact upon the traumas of Chinese Indonesians today, especially given the recent Ahok sentencing. We're really excited to have Gemma on the show, and we're super thrilled to be talking to her. And this is actually going to be a longer episode because we are going to be taking a break uh, after this episode, uh, our one-year break. We'll be back in a few weeks, but for more details, tune in to the end of the show and we'll talk about it. So... Here's to it. Hello, and thanks so much for having me uh, as a guest on your podcast. My name's Gemma Purdy, and I'm from Monash University, where I'm a lecturer in Indonesian studies and Australian history, or the history of Australia's engagement with Asia. And I'm also a research fellow at the Australia Indonesia Centre, which is based at Monash. Yeah. I'm also a co-host of the Talking Indonesia podcast, which is based at Melbourne University and is led by my colleague, Dr. Dave McRae. And the objective of our podcast is to invite mostly Indonesians to talk about issues related to politics, culture, foreign policy, etc., Uh, for an English-speaking audience. And as I say, we've been going for about two years now with a really nice listenership, if that's the word. It probably has to do with you guys being actual academics. Really? (laughs) (laughs) Or as Dialica's like, And we're we're pseudo-academics. It's about, yeah, network, isn't it? Yeah, so it's attached to the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, which is uh, also ran out of Melbourne. And so they push it to their subscribers and etc. Mm-hmm. When I was in college and, you know, writing about May 1998, mm-hmm. Gemma's book was actually a big source material from which I've drawn my conclusions. So it's sort of very surreal to finally talk to Gemma, which is awesome. And uh, we've been chatting for over, I think, an hour before the starting of this recording. All good stuff, too. Too bad we didn't record it. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Gemma, I also read your book in college. Um, Stephanie's degree is vastly different from mine. I was an arts and theater degree. My undergraduate thesis was like a a solo performance about Chinese Indonesian identity. And I also read your book to use that as source material. And so it's really kind of cool that like both Stephanie and I independently found your work. And now we're, you know, talking to you. (laughs) So it's really amazing. Oh, thanks for having me and thanks for reading it. You know, what I have found is, you know, when I go around Indonesia and people say they've read my book, you know, I don't know, it's obviously no coincidence that a lot of the time they are ethnic Chinese Indonesians mm-hmm. themselves and they tell me about how they learned stuff they didn't know yeah. by reading it. So that's just awesome. So yeah, so really excited to have her come in today and talk about May 98 um, and anti-Chinese violence, which is very relevant today, not only given Ahok's um, blasphemy charges and consequent jailing, but also the rising anti-Chinese sentiments. Yeah. How did you end up being interested in this particular silo of violence in Indonesian history? Yeah, well, I guess the story just begins with me being an arts and humanities student uh, in Melbourne in the mid to early mm-hmm. 90s. And I found my way to Indonesian language because I was a kid who was kind of focused on international relations, you know, that kind of outlook. And 
in the 1990s in Australia, we had a government at the time that was very much, you know, you've got to know about Asia. You know, Australia's part of Asia. It was a bit of an awakening. Mm-hmm. As a kid, it was like, yep, this is the place. We need to, you know, know our neighbours and know Indonesia. So I did the language. It also coincided with me, with an interest I had. I was very much a kind of social activist kid. I was a member of Amnesty International from when I was young. And when I was, you know, about 16, 17, the Dili massacres happened mm-hmm. in East Timor. Oh, yeah. And kind of so my awareness was there of Indonesia as this place that's kind of a mystery to Australians. Just wanted to understand it. So that was where I was at when I got to university. And so I enrolled in all the courses I could on Indonesian politics and history, of which I was very lucky. At Melbourne Uni, there were great ones. So I had some really great lecturers, great mentors there. Charles Koppel and later came Arif Budiman and Ariel Herianto were all at Melbourne Uni. Yeah. So, you know, you can, therefore you can see where I'm going with the ethnic Chinese thing, right? All those guys work on that. It was also coinciding. Again, it's timing. I was doing, you know, an honours degree in political science and had a year off, travelled around Indonesia, came back and was like, oh, I think I might do, you know, postgraduate, but, you know, thinking about topics. And this was at the end of 97. Oh. Oh. So sat down with Charles Koppel, uh, who said, well, Gemma, let's have a look at what's happening with the Chinese, uh, as he does, because that's his area. We, you know, very quickly it was like, wow, yep, that's where it's happening. That's where it's at. So the violence stuff, that's not what led me there. It was like an interest in Indonesia and the political change in Indonesia. And then I guess my social justice thing came in there too because it was about minority rights at that point. Yeah. So it was about timing, you know. So I started my postgraduate degree at the beginning of 1998. Oh, yeah. So, so that was... Main, you know, yeah, they all unfolded whilst I was doing it. That's amazing. Do you want to go briefly for people who don't know what um, happened in 98? Oh, well, briefly. <laughs> How briefly? Oh, briefly. Right now is the anniversary that, you know, we're speaking on the 15th of May. So these days, 19 years ago, were so momentous in Indonesia's recent political history. Uh, major riots took place in Jakarta, but also in other cities, including Solo, and a little bit before that in Medan. Mm-hmm. And they were mostly anti-Chinese violence. But what had led up to this cataclysm, I guess, um, in Jakarta in those days in May was about 12 months, you could say, of growing anti-Chinese sentiment, but also growing social instability and economic anxiety and crisis, actually. So Indonesia was in the Asian economic crisis, as it was called. Its currency was devalued and, mm-hmm. um, you know, the WTO and the IMF were basically dictating terms to the Indonesian government by early 1998. And so in 1997 in particular uh, was a situation of food rights, as, you know, I've called them, where there was all this economic anxiety, which led to price increases because of the currency devaluation. And in some cases, you know, probably um, price gouging and things like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, as Chinese are often in a middleman role, where they are money lenders, where they are brokers for, for basic goods and that kind of thing, there were many attacks on Chinese business. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah. 
and that was growing throughout 97 and into early 1998. But at the same time, on the grand kind of elite level, political level, yeah. Sahato was obviously in trouble. As I said, the economic crisis was really putting pressure on his government, you know, internationally as well as domestically. Yeah. Um, and we can see that there were deliberate moves to point the finger at ethnic Chinese at that time. It was all done very surreptitiously, but um, clearly was the case that ethnic Chinese were being scapegoated, right? Yeah. And so that was all building up in the early uh, months of 1998. And the frequency of these food riots was getting more and more. And they were also looking suspiciously planned. Yeah. yeah. Um, you could see patterns, patterns in that. I talk about this uh, in the what work I've done as kind of normal, and I put that in inverted commas, um, anti-Chinese violence, which throughout Indonesia's modern history has been, you know, pretty commonplace, almost, you know, acceptable. You know, we we'll hate to use the word or the term, but part of life. I think for them, it is a part of life. Yeah. So that was being played upon by the government at that point who were facing this crisis and needed a distraction from it and needed a scapegoat for it. And it was, you know, quite effective, I think, in, you know, there was this social unrest and it needed an outlet and it was directed to the Chinese for that time. Yeah. So Sahato was successful in getting, you know, re-elected again in inverted commas um in march and everything was you know seeming to go along as per normal but what occurred in mid-may 1998 was what the fact-finding team which was a, a a body set up by the then habibi government which came into power after Sahato to investigate the events of May 98. And what they concluded and what, what is, you know, I've also concluded is that the violence at that time was much more widespread. It also included this extraordinary event of sexual violence, which mm-hmm. until then, you know, we really weren't aware of in the context of anti-Chinese violence. Mm-hmm. And, and the conclusions made from all this was that there was a systemic pattern of violence and that, with external, you know, forces being involved to escalate it. Mm -hmm. This became what I've also referred to as unlimited violence, whereas normally Chinese violence against the Chinese is limited in that it's attacks on properties and businesses and sites of religious worship, but it's not really going as far as murder. Um, Rape and murder. (laughs) Yes, in the modern context, right? So new order and and that kind of thing. This was beyond that. This was was different. Mm -hmm. So to kind of provide more of a statistical context to what Gemma has said, here are the numbers about what exactly happened on May 1998. According to the joint fact-finding team established by the government, May 98 riots led to at least the deaths of 2,244 people, 152 reported cases of rape against ethnic Chinese women, and damages to property amounting 3.1 trillion rupiah or $27.5 billion USD in just less than a week. We also talked about the riots being engineered as if, you know, we've taken for granted all of you know that, but the reason why this is such a sure thing if in the world of academia and journalists is because of a geospatial analysis conducted by Trisakti Universities and verified by the joint fact-finding team that concluded riots were organized. The riots started out in very different faraway points at around the same time, 9 a.m. Um, so it was very obvious based on the distance of the different points and you know there are over 10 points at which all of the riots happened. 
at nine and then it moved to a different point at 10 that you know that there was clearly organizations and riot provocateurs that led to the 2000 over deaths and 150 over rapes in just two days and it was lawlessness you know there were no police on the streets or if the police were there they did nothing to stop it yeah so as you two as ethnic chinese indonesians know very well the impact of those riots was profound on the ethnic chinese community and many left the country uh, most going back again but some not immediately after may 98 there was a concerted effort to you know bring them back in bring the chinese home um and And the money as well (laughs) reassure them yes because the money was important so important for building the the economy again so that's kind of a very potted version you can probably add a lot more of your own to that So I went to the memorial recently of the May 98 riots and there's a mass graves in the Tepe Ponokrangon. Um, and so they had ex-president B.J. Habibi and Jarod, the vice governor, now gov- current governor of Jakarta, I guess, which is kind of weird. Um, Temporary governor. <laughs> and um, no one has ever ended up being, you know, indicted or, you know, punished for this. And that's something very sad almost about, you know, the fact that not a single person, uh, even like at very low levels, right, were categorized and tried anything. And I think also part of this conversation that we're having that is so important right now is that Obviously, the myth about 98 is that it's this powder keg situation. Everything just became chaos and nobody's really responsible because chaos just happened, right? But in fact, there's a lot more people who are responsible, but nobody wants to kind of take them to court or take them into account for what happened because these people are very much still in power. I mean, you look at today, our current vice president, Yusuf Kala, has made comments that lean towards this myth of the Chinese dominating the economy. You know, he said, and I quote from him in Indonesian, um, he said that sebagian besar orang yang kaya adalah warga keturunan yang beragama Konghucu maupun Kristen. Sedangkan yang miskin sebagian besar Islam dan ada juga yang Kristen. Which translates to? He said, most rich people in Indonesia are of Chinese descent, mostly Christians and Confucians, while the poor are mostly Muslims and some Christians. They keep, as you say, using these these myths, you know, trotting out the myths of ethnic Chinese controlling a large part of the Indonesian population without data to support it. Yeah. But all through the new order, this was the trope. You know, this was the, oh, the Chinese control this. They're 3% of the population. In fact, they're less than 3% of the population. We know that. It's like between 1% and 2% of the population. So they're not... Even 3%, tiny, tiny minority. Um, But this trope, impossible to be true, given that the Sahato family itself was so incredibly wealthy and dominant, you know, player in the economy. Uh, You know, on the other hand, ethnic Chinese business were given 
um, advantages under the new order. You know, they're doing deals with the Sahato family and other conglomerates, and, and we know mm-hmm. this is right. We know that there have been problems too with ethnic Chinese and how they have done their business and engaged in the corrupt practices, which everybody does, but in order to get ahead. So that's got to be acknowledged. Um, my argument's always that it has fed by you know, this historical and still very, very current sense of extreme vulnerability and insecurity that ethnic Chinese Indonesians have. So you even back, 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 like during the colonial period uh, and then in the, you know, during right up until now, ethnic Chinese have had to look out for themselves and their economic interests and really their own security. So you need to make money in order to make sure that you can be safe. So so there's just always this idea that you had to pay for your own security as well. Like um, you have to like, you know, pay to live in a more secure area. So there's like, I think a lot of people inherit that trauma as well. Like Yes. So um, I took notes from your book, Gemma. And um, so the first recorded anti-Chinese violence that you noted in your book was at 1740. And then there's the 1943 Pontianak Affair in which the Japanese killed 1,500 people, but 854 was mostly Chinese because they were fearing a multi-ethnic nationalist uprising. And then there's the 1946 Tangerang, where um, 600 people were killed by radical Muslims. And then like there's just so much leading up to this that you do feel that if the political and economic conditions are not right, so if there's another economic crisis and there's another political need and benefit from using this age-old hatred, then something could happen again. I would say, though, that, yes, I you know, in, in my analysis of, you know, looking closely at events of anti-Chinese violence in that period around May 98, what you find is that there needs to be certain ingredients there. The anti-Chinese sentiment is stable, right? Stable, that's a Throughout yeah. Indonesia's modern history, it's stable. It's never gone away, but it doesn't mean that it's always going to lead to violence, right? The key for me was looking at where are the moments where it goes Mm -hmm. and becomes a violent event. Mm -hmm. And so there are lots of, you know, every, you know, most incidents have very unique conditions, local contexts where, you know, there's a dispute of some kind between an ethnic Chinese shopkeeper or, you know, the local church something like that, and there's those little triggers. But also influencing all of that, influencing the anti-Chinese sentiment, is this idea of the economic advantage of the Chinese, that that's part of that. What leads to, you know, the Mm -hmm. violence... Um, it, you know, in terms of riots, you know, that where we see lots of people get involved and not just, you know, a random angry customer um, is when, you know, the social conditions are there, the economic conditions are there that fuel uh, frustrations and social unrest, you know, can be possible. So times of economic tension, um, mm-hmm. times of extreme political tension and also times when, you know, in order for these riots to happen, and we talked about it with May, you have to have an absence of security itself. So that's gone, um, you know, for whatever reason, deliberate or not deliberate. So what I would say, though, about right now and about how you're feeling and about how anti-Chinese sentiments are so present is that we have to ask, where has this come from? Like, why is there this, why are these groups feeling this extraordinary sense of some kind of fear that this one figure this one ethnic chinese indonesian leader deserves such a such vitriol and such attack and because 
the economic situation in Indonesia is stable, you know, if not good, right? If not good. Um, political situation is very stable, you know, like Jokowi won resoundingly. He had a bumpy first year, but since then everything's been really stable. There's been development. You know, why now with Ahok? Yeah. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, you'd have to look at that particular case and those groups. What seems to be the case, and if you also look back through the history of anti-Chinese activities um, and incidents of violence and growing sentiment, is what you also see alongside the economic, you know, anxieties and things, is the jockeying of these Islamic groups for more space within the political context, right? Like defining themselves somehow as Mm -hmm. different. It's setting up an other, but it's it's finding more space. And uh, I think that in the Indonesian political context, what's happening here is that these extreme groups are trying to get more influence and they have succeeded in doing that, you could argue, because in the legitimate form of political activity, uh, i.e. your own political parties um, and organisations, they don't. They haven't succeeded there. Even in the They don't get their members elected. It, it, they're not popular. So that's always been part of the story and it's very much part of the story with AHOP, um, isn't it, that these um, Islamic groups are pushing for this. You know, what is interesting is, and it may not be the place to get into it here, but, you know, this argument really that's been raging about is this about religion or is this about race with regards to Ahok. Again, I would say that those have been indivisible things for a long, long time in Indonesian history. And so you can't really separate one from the other. It seemed like a moot point to me, this argument that was going round and round. Is it is it about race or is it about religion? Um, clearly it was about his ethnicity, which includes, yeah, his religion. And I think Ahok was also really notable because he was one of the first Indonesian politicians who was very, very upfront about his Chinese Indonesian identity and, you know, calling himself Aha. Yeah. You have other Chinese Indonesian politicians, you know, like hiding there. Yeah. I mean, he's put himself out there as this, like, you know, like a bit of a pioneer, hasn't he? He's like really been brave to do that. Mm-hmm. with Ahok and with the situation in Indonesia right now and with all of this, you know, feelings of anti-Chinese sentiment. What is important to remember and to hold on to is that there has not been violence. You know, you could say yet, but there hasn't. And there were there were massive opportunities for it to take to happen. Since last year, yeah. Reason why is because the military or the police, whoever, were right there, right, to stop it and had been told by... Jokowi to stop it, right? So in this case, the president is clearly not going to allow, well, we hope, this kind of escalation, that the security forces are going to clamp down on it, which hasn't happened in these events that we're talking about in the past. Um, So whilst for you and for, you know, ethnic Chinese across Indonesia, it's got to be a time of heightened concern because you're thinking back to 98 or even back to 65, um, but I, I, you know, my fingers are all crossed. My fingers are crossed, you know, and, and as long as the president and the military, you know, are there as guardians of the security, I, you know, I don't feel it is imminent. 
this idea that it can happen at any time and that it will happen again in Indonesia, I'm not disputing that that wouldn't be the case if you know there's again this combination of factors you know some elite power struggle some economic crisis um this can happen small outbreaks of violence in in you know towns and cities around indonesia that are sparked by you know something that includes and involves an ethnic chinese and non-chinese it might happen but again the fact is they have not been happening yeah and you know that that's got to Count for something. Be a good sign. Yeah, it's got to be. It's got to count for a lot. What I do think is encouraging, and I kind of you know. I mean, obviously we're all realistic, and we we do remember what happened in the past. But I kind of want to echo Gemma's point about being positive because there was something about seeing all the candlelit vigils as well as the outpouring of like the flower um, boards for Aho at City Hall. Like this kind of outpouring, not only from ethnic Chinese but also from other Indonesians. Which I've never seen before. I Not think. for somebody like him, which could have been so polarizing and is so polarizing at so many different levels to see such an outpouring of support. I mean, you know, just remember that you know, uh, so nearly half, you know, of Jakarta's voting population voted for Ahok, and as I said, the numbers of Chinese, uh, well, perhaps in Jakarta they're greater than you know overall population, but say it is around the three percent. I mean, other people, non-Chinese, voted for Ahok and thought he was doing a good job. So I think that, and we, you know, we hope that Indonesian democracy, it has matured since 98, you know, it has, and civil society has matured, and also people are are more educated, and you would hope that that is a force to push back, and that if, you know, something did happen, like, and as we've seen, the the vigils, the protests against this decision against Ahok, if if something did start to unfold, you know, which involved violence, that there would be forces like civil society forces, which is so much stronger now than they were in 98, to stand up and say, this is not right. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's really great is that because you are Chinese Indonesians, that you are the ones out there having this conversation. And as we discussed earlier, for generations before you, and you know, even your parents, it was, let's not talk about it. That's the last thing we want to talk about. We just want to, you know, sweep it under the rug, get through the day, run our business and have no trouble. And we'll do everything it takes to make sure that that is the case. Um, but we'll have a contingency yeah just in case we have to jump on that plane or whatever yeah um but your your generation is taking a different view and you know that's what's making the difference it's going to make the difference These things like prejudice die hard. And if we don't talk about it, that's especially harder. Yeah, we have to continue working harder and preserve the liberal values that we hold so dearly. Thank you so much, Gemma, for talking to us for over two hours. It was a fun 6 a.m. wake up call for me. You should also listen to our podcast, Talking Indonesia. Uh, which talks about a lot of great topics with great Indonesians. So we want to thank you for being on the show and endorse our podcast as well. Um, Music credits to Ryan Little, Jazzard, and Brooke Free. And yeah, we talked earlier, we mentioned earlier about taking a little bit of a break. 
we're not actually going to stop working on the podcast. We're just trying to work on the back end of the podcast, which is updating our music, making it better for you guys, and lining up a lot more interviews and interesting Indonesian content for you guys, given that we're leaving soon. And given that we really want you guys' help, if any of you are interested in becoming field producers or helping out in some other way, please let us know. Yeah, reach out to us via either Facebook message or email us at delegicapodcast at gmail.com or reach us via our social media accounts. We're also on Twitter now. Hey, courtesy of Stephanie. Not that I post much, but you can follow uh, our Twitter at Dialogica PDCST. Yeah, I can't do Dialogica Podcast because Twitter, that's too long of a handle. And I'm also on Twitter at Steph Tank. It's been a great first year and we're very proud of the work and we really want to continue it. And thank you guys so much for your support and love. And We've had such a great ride, our first year, learning a lot about Indonesia and like re- meeting new people from the podcast and just, yeah. Here's to the second year and we'll... We're looking forward to being back after the break. There's still a lot of room to grow, and we're looking forward to it. So listen to us in a few weeks. Thanks.